I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. This week, we hear from first-time author Aaron Geiger-Smith, whose new book, Thank You for Voting, looks at the progress toward and impediments to full American suffrage as a prelude to the 2020 election. These voters are going to be waiting about an hour and a half to cast their votes today. The city has consolidated. Normally they have about 180 polling places. This time around, just five. They said they just didn't have enough poll workers to man all those other polling places. The Cones and health department workers keep people six feet apart while other voters wait in the drive-thru yes, lane. I am. I think this is the silliest thing that ever happened. I mean, they should have postponed it. They should have really postponed this, you know, get, you know, and get people sick out here. Georgia's primary election making national headlines. Precincts closing late at night, lines wrapping around buildings and calls for investigations following allegations of voter suppression. The results are still coming in with the secretary of state's office saying it could take longer than usual because so many people chose to vote by absentee ballot due to coronavirus. Aaron Geiger-Smith, those are scenes from two recent primary elections in the 2020 campaign year. Are they a harbinger of what this country might expect in November or aberrations? I hope that they are not, but I think a lot of preparations need to be made or, or it will be. I actually think it's so important that we had these sort of test runs of the primaries to kind of see see where the kinks are and hopefully both the uh, local elections officials and at the state and federal level are, are watching it and and seeing how to solve the problems because it is it's going to be unusual no matter no matter how you slice it it's going to be a, a different election. Well, certainly the coronavirus has added complications, uh, but the uh, there's been a lot of changes in how states vote over, since the last cycle. A lot of states with new voting machines and uh, new poll workers having to learn how things work. So what remedies in this short amount of time can states actually take to ensure that November works well? You know, it's just about having the manpower and, like you said, teaching the poll workers how to to operate the machines and making it enough time to, to test things out. I mean, it's hope it it feels like we have a lot of time for the election, but there's really no time to spare. And because of coronavirus, we might have a lot of new poll workers um, as, as elderly poll workers may choose not to not to take that service this time. Um, so preparation really is so important. And I hope that we can get the focus to that, to both educate voters on um, the new mail systems and, you know, even new machine options, too. So I hope this this focus can shift to really education and preparation away, away from kind of controversy in the way that it's become. You've been thinking a lot about how Americans vote. You have a new book out called Thank You for Voting. Tell me about the project. So the goal, the overall goal of the project is just to increase voter turnout by educating voters, inspiring them both through our the good and bad of our history and helping people to understand how they can expand their the power of their own vote by um, getting others to join them. So it's both gives you sort of even step-by-step directions in the back, a checklist of things you need to do, but then also goes through how different groups got the right to vote, women with the 100-year suffrage anniversary coming up in August, African-Americans, Native Americans, 
and then a look at our current suppression issues and ways we can make voting a little more convenient. Um, and then I move um, to the looking forward, the present looking into 2020 of people who are already out there doing the work to get out the vote and um, innovative uses of social media that were used for 2018 that made a big impact. Um, so talk to people who are focusing on getting out first time and young, younger voters. Um, takes a look a little bit at what businesses are doing to um, participate and foster voter participation. And then I also have explainer chapters of voting topics that I think even the most educated voters can have trouble with. And honestly, I learned so much reporting those chapters. So those chapters are gerrymandering, the electoral college news literacy, and the ever vexing polling. So the, the goal was for, if you have a question about a voting process, I hope that it's in there and then, you know, helps you just feel excited um, and empowered when you go to the polls. The book also comes in a young, young person's edition. What's that all about? You know, as, as we were writing the, uh, I say we, as I was writing the, um, the adult book, HarperCollins just thought there was an opportunity to um, transfer it into a, a younger edition. And, you know, it's all of the same ideas, but hoping that um, young, young readers will get excited early and, and participate in the way that they can and, and think about voting and what it means in the country. Um, that one just has some more fun facts and, and anecdotes from some of the voting experts in the book, kind of how they got to their their current stage. Um, but what I learned doing this reporting was that if you're not taught to vote, you know, when you're younger, if you don't go with your parents or um, you're not a member of a, a church that promotes voting or just all the different ways that people learn about voting, you really may not understand the importance, you know, when you turn 18 or, or in your early 20s and it can be intimidating, you know, young people don't love doing things that they've never done before and don't feel comfortable doing. And so I really feel like our responsibility around voting needs to include much more making sure young people understand the mechanics that you have to register. You know, there are, there are many steps you have to take. And so often we tell people, go vote, go vote, go vote. But we don't mention, well, do you need a specific ID for your state? You know, just all of the logistics, I feel like um, we all, the media and educators and parents can all do a better job in preparing our young people um, because the voter turnout rate on, among young people is just really low. And, you know, we should want everyone to vote and we should want people to be lifelong voters. So I hope that um, that can be a, a part of the attention of this book is really educating younger people because they're, they're passionate about many things. It's not apathy. Um, it's just a, a not reaching the right person to instruct on the right mechanics at the right time. And I think that's something we can improve on. What led you to voting as a subject matter? It's sort of two strings that, that had to come together. The first was after 2016, just as a reporter. So I should say I'm not a political reporter. I um, was a legal reporter for a long time and um, also write features about entrepreneurs and different trends and you know, so I, I, politics specifically wasn't ever a strong desire of mine to cover, although I certainly um, am always a news junkie and, and follow it religious, religiously. Um, but after 2016, there were just so many questions about 
the basics, you know, the electoral college and the popular vote not matching up for only the second time in modern history. I wanted to know more about that um, because there was so much confusion over polling. I really wanted to understand that better. Um, and then just no matter how I thought about it, what it comes down to is each person showing up and making a call. So I just became interested sort of in the whole subject and was kind of trying to figure out how to work away, work my way into it in a way that I wanted to contribute, I guess. Um, and then I was scrolling Instagram one afternoon as we are all to want to do, or at least I am. And, um, Reese Witherspoon, the actress Reese Witherspoon was interviewing the author Ann Patchett and Ann told Reese that she was writing a book about women and voting. And for some reason, I just thought that's it. That's the exact sort of project that I would be interested in something that's a deep dive. And so though I did not know, Anne, I had written a lot of stories on books and the business of books for the wall street journal. And so I emailed Anne's publicist and said, you know, if she needs a researcher, I was a lawyer before I was a journalist, so I'm comfortable in all, in all legal aspects. Um, if she needs a researcher and someone to look into doing some background interviews, let her know that I would love to help. Um, and Anne got back to me and, she was interested in my take and I of course was um you know she's a, a wonderful author and so just getting to to work near her brain was exciting for me and so I started it as a research project for her um and continued on that vein I, I would choose a, a topic a month but it was supposed to be a side project like really you know a 20 percent if that of of work, I was continuing to write articles and I just let it take over. I became obsessed. I spent so much time just digging into whatever was that month's topic, whether it was youth voting or African Americans in voting or Native Americans in voting. Um, and at one point, Anne really did say, she was like, I think you may be spending too much time on this. This is a lot of, this is a lot of work product. Um, and, but as it turned out, Anne needed more time or wanted more time on the novel she was working on. And at that point, I'd been deep into it for almost a year. And she just called me one day and said, Erin, I think, you know, the timing is not going to work for me to do this. And I think that it's your project and you should take it and run with it. And can you do it? And will you do it? And for, you know, in a moment, even though I truly hadn't, I was not thinking of it as my book at all. I was like, I, I'll do it. I, I was so excited about the prospect of sharing all of this information, honestly, that I um, said, yes, let's go. And now nearly a year and a half later, here we are. Um, so that's, it, it's, it came about in an unusual way for a book for sure. But um, once and asked me if I would take it over, I of course quickly had to um, decide on an outline and all of the sources. And I had just until then been researching. And so I had to, um, immediately dive in and start reporting because my version was um, going to be more reported than Anne's probably would have been. So, so you're a first-time author, and we are talking to you on your book's official publication day, June 23rd, 2020. So for a first-time author, what is official pub day like? What's it feel like? Um, you know, it feels to me like an, almost another day in quarantine, I have to say. Um, it's 
it is very exciting. I did. I walked down to my local bookstore and saw that they had it all, you know, the full window display. That was very exciting. Um, I'm just, I adore bookstores. So that might've been the highlight moment. Um, it's just an interesting time. I, I've talked to other authors who have books coming out right now and we're all just um, doing what we can to get the word out. And then, you know, the world events help you very much keep any of your own troubles or concerns in perspective. So at this point, I'm just, I'm excited that it's out in the world and um, excited to, to talk to you and some others. And um, I'm going to drop it off personally at a few friends' house for sort of a, a roving book party. So that'll be, um, that's my day. I think everybody watching understands just another day in quarantine with what we've all been going through. But you actually write in the book that the coronavirus pandemic and our isolation, self-isolation increased your passion around this subject for people to vote at every level and every election. Why? Well, I think, you know, the coronavirus in, in general, we, we saw the power that our local officials have, the power and importance, and that they have to make decisions that really impact all of us. And in the worst of times, as coronavirus coronavirus certainly felt here in New York City, um, they are making life and death choices. And so, especially during presidential election years, we have so much focus on the top of the ticket, but we all need to vote, you know, all the way down. It certainly matters who our city council members are, and it matters very much who our mayor is. And so that was throughout the writing of the book, I really wanted to focus on um, how much your vote matters for, for offices, of course, for the president, but on down. And I really think that coronavirus really drove that home. And then, of course, vote by mail has just... Um, become a, a huge topic. And as I was writing the book, it was just something that states were doing as a matter of convenience and states that uh, have all mail voting have generally higher turnout rates than other states. There are a lot of contribu- contributing factors to turnout rate always, but you know, it, it seemed it's a good positive thing that states are doing and there's a movement toward adopting it more. Um, but then of course, when coronavirus happened, it became a massive focus as we prepare to do it on a much larger scale. Your own story begins in Liberty, Texas. Tell me about Liberty. That's true. Liberty is a town, it's a little under 10,000 now, but it was about 6,000 when I was growing up. Um, It's geographically between Houston and and Beaumont. So it's in Southeast Texas. And it's a town with a small, um, you know, a town square. We have just your quintessential courthouse. Um, but it is a town that's very racially diverse and um, it has its its monetary struggles for sure. There are all socioeconomic levels, and um, it's a, a spe- it was a special and interesting place to grow up. Um, but a- as I mentioned in the book, it's a very different politically from where I live now. So Liberty votes just it, it's a very Republican. Um, part of the state as, as, and as much of rural America is. And obviously where, where I live now is very democratic. So I was happy that I have both of those perspectives and feel very close to both of those places as I write this book. Well, give, um, give me the quick story of your path from small town Liberty, Texas, 
to New York City right. by way of law school and journalism. What was the path that set you on? Um, so I grew up in Liberty my entire life till I went to college, and I went to the University of Texas uh, at Austin, and I was a journalism major there. So journalism wasn't totally out of the blue after being an attorney, but. Um, and then I lived in New York City for a year after undergrad and just kind of, you know, if you fall in love with the city, you fall in love and there's, it's hard to ever turn back or it was for me. Um, I did return to Texas for law school and again at the University of Texas. And I was a practicing, I practiced law in Houston and Austin in, you know, big commercial litigation firms um, for about four years before I just couldn't get the idea of being part of the news out of my mind. So I, um, but I, but I knew I needed to learn to not write like a lawyer, to be honest. Um, so I went to Columbia for the year for their year long master's program. So that was my, um, quick, quick or not, or not quick trip, but, um, I enjoyed practicing law. I wasn't one of those lawyers that hated it, but the parts that I enjoyed the most were the research and writing. So, um, it was a, a good transition to journalism, for sure. You described being in love with New York City. Are you still in love with it after the experience of coronavirus? You know, yes. It, is, it has certainly made its um, difficulties known to all of us who live in small apartments. And, and I have a very active six-year-old, and we did leave the city after uh, several weeks of being fully locked down, um, obviously back now. But, you know, yes, I want to see the city come roaring back and I, I want to be a part of it. Even when even when it was hard, certainly can't can't give up on it. I don't think there's just, you know, you picture the parts of the city you love. And when they were shut down and quiet, that's just so hard to um, even really contemplate. But honestly, this it, the city really feels sort of back in swing now i think spring spring did it well weather always makes things a little nice weather makes things a little better so um you know i i am i'm still in love what can i say well i want to dig into some of the history that you tell in your book uh, about enfranchisement just before we start and the specific uh, areas of history that you tell america was founded around an ideal and, and those ideals are enshrined in a constitution but with that in mind, why did it take this country nearly two centuries for all adults to be enfranchised? You know, I, it's the old story of people with the power being afraid of giving it up. It's, you know, what I learned as I studied specifically the timeline of voting was the idea of everybody being able to vote was always there from the start. And then at every time it was expanded, there were people who were pushing for it to be expanded a little more. So when the 15th Amendment, which allowed um, black men to vote, um, when that was debated, there were discussions to put in there prohibitions on discriminating on the basis of education or language or things like that. And, and they didn't make it in. And so we had another decades and decades of things like poll taxes and, and literacy tests. Um, so, you know, the idea was always there. Our, our thought of everyone gets to vote that we are so proud of has existed throughout our history, but it just took a really long time 
to fully grant those rights or or admit you know that citizens of the country already had those rights which i think is kind of a better way to look at it um it just took the country a really long time well, to you, get there you start out by telling us a little bit more about the history of the african-american vote i want to start this part of our conversation with a cl recent clip from uh, atlanta mayor keisha lance bottoms that went viral after mm -hmm. she spoke it on may 29th 2020 let's watch when you burn down this city, you're burning down our community. If you want change in America, go and register to vote. Show up at the polls on June 9th. Do it in November. That is the change we need in this country. What is the recent history of African-American turnout in American elections? You know, African-American turnout is um, similar to, to the way that white Americans turn out. So it was about 60% uh, in the last election. But it does, you know, it goes up and down. For Obama's first um, term, there was really large turnout, a, a, little, a little less the second term, but still big. And then a lack of African-American turnout for Hillary Clinton was um, considered, you know, part part of her downfall. Um, but I think the better way to sort of think about it is all of the barriers that some African-Americans face, especially in the South, still when they go to vote. You know, that um, quote, the, the speech from the mayor of Atlanta was, I found it so powerful at the time and and still do and and of course she's absolutely right to you can't have change without vote without voting um but you understand a little the pushback of okay we've we've voted and we're not seeing enough change so i do think any conversation now needs to fully admit that that voting has to go with other policy changes but you can't have the policy changes often without the voting so um, voting is not the only solution by any means to our country's issues with systemic racism, but it's a huge part of it. And then I thought what was so interesting that kind of turned out from both um, the Atlanta mayor's calls to action and then President Obama talked about voting later. And then um, LeBron James just in the last few weeks kind of pushed back a little that voting isn't enough, but he is starting an organization that not only educates, his focus I believe is gonna be on educating young black Americans to vote, but also at the same time tries to tackle current suppression issues. So I do think we need to think of all those as going hand in hand and really admit where our faults still are in the system. Um, suppression doesn't look like it did in the days of Jim Crow laws where there was just an absolute, you know, no, you can't vote or something like a literacy test that was impossible to pass. Those were those were pretty blatant. But today there are things that um, we really have to to keep an eye on like voter roll purges or wait times being too long. Um, you know, that's what in Georgia we just saw in the last primary, just terribly long lines. And some of that was a lot of it was from a lack of preparation whether that preparation lack of preparation had ill intent or not the same 
effect was people had to wait too long to vote. And there are many people who simply can't wait seven hours to vote. Um, and that's a barrier that shouldn't happen in the country. And I just, um, I think all of the focus on it now, um, especially this far before the election will maybe make a difference in, in November. I feel like a lot of Americans are focusing on it more and, um, that can only hopefully lead to improvements. Of course, a seminal moment in the history of African-American enfranchisement was the signing of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. We have a clip of, of Lyndon Johnson, president at the time, when that bill was signed. Let's watch. This is a victory for the freedom of the American Negro, but it is also a victory for the freedom of the American nation. And every family across this great entire searching land will live stronger in liberty, will live more splendid in expectation, and will be prouder to be American because of the act that you have passed that I will sign today. That scene in the rotunda of the Capitol. Aaron Geiger-Smith, uh, the Congress wrote the law and so that it would have to be renewed at, at right. intervals. What was the thinking behind that? The thinking was twofold. One, that if all of a sudden the country no longer needed those federal oversight uh, of states with discrimination issues, you know, if it was if it was no longer necessary, then it could expire. And then it was to pacify those who didn't, you know, weren't so much interested in in the Voting Rights Act, Act lasting forever. It kind of gave them um, some some cover, too. So it was both to, in case the country turned itself around fully and it was no longer necessary, and then also so those who didn't want it might have a chance to not vote for it when it came up for um, renewal. One of the presidents who enthusiastically signed a renewal of the Voting Rights Act was Ronald Reagan in 1982. In general, when Congress has had to debate the, the reauthorization of the VRA, what has the tenor been like in those debates? Is this you know, always an, 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 uh, a divided conversation? Well, it's it almost always seems very divided in, in the background. You know, in public, people aren't likely to say that people don't need the right to vote and, and we shouldn't protect it. I always find that the sort of soaring rhetoric that's used when it is signed is how we like to think about ourselves and kind of what goes on in the background of, of maybe trying to chip it away. Um, you know, that happened nearly every time it was time to renew. But ultimately, um, Congress and, you know, whoever was president at the time felt like renewing it was um, whether politically important or just important, it was um, always renewed. And sometimes it was a lot of a lot of back and forth and um, <laughs> maybe a little congressional backstabbing sometimes. Things were called compromises that didn't necessarily seem that way in the end. Um, but I do think it's important to, to just realize that no matter where, how ugly it got in the back, the final decision was always that we need this and we couldn't um, turn our back on it. So I think but understanding both sides of those coins that people did want to chip away at it, chip away at it every time, but that in the end, um, 
you know, it was renewed and, and often strengthened uh, through the Obama administration. Earlier, you made reference to also looking at the history of Native American suffrage. Uh, what's the story regarding that? What's the brief story on that? You know, it's uh, Native American history is all all very difficult in our, our country's history, and voting is no different. I mean, for so long, the conversation was whether Native Americans um, or indigenous peoples would be citizens. Um, and the, that citizenship discussion lasted a long time and 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 then once citizenship was um determined then it was well if native americans live on reservations should they still be able to vote um and you know it was into the 1950s before every state allowed native americans to vote um no matter where where they lived um there was we always hear about um you know that they don't pay enough taxes that was a, a argument that went for a really long time um but what's sort of still interesting about that history they they had to you know native americans fought in american wars and then had to come back like like african americans had as well and argue for the vote even after they had um fought for the country so it it's really is a tough history and even today, when you, to go back to the Voting Rights Act, um, scholars who look at the number of cases filed either um, on behalf of Native Americans or that directly impact their voting rights, they have just a very high success record in cases like the closing of polling places or how local officials are elected. Um, and as one of those scholars pointed out to me, the fact that their success rate in those cases are so high really shows that, you know, we're still sort of putting up barriers for that Native Americans have to have to jump to be able to vote. This August, the country will mark the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. Uh, to uh, talk a little bit more about that, we chose a clip from the 75th anniversary with Sandra Day O'Connor, who, of course, was the first female appointed to the Supreme Court. Let's listen to what she had to say on an earlier anniversary. 75 years on, we have the vote. We hold positions of power. We enjoy at least some opportunities in all sectors of the economy and save perhaps for a few old folks who still don't get it. We have the full respect that all citizens in a democracy deserve. No doubt the redoubtable women of the suffrage movement would tell us not to rest until full equality is achieved, and quite rightly so. But it is fitting on this 75th anniversary that we pause to remember the ladies who secured our rights and to celebrate the remarkable progress that the past 75 years have brought. Remember the ladies who secured rights. The names that most people would be familiar with are Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Who are others that should be on that list that they should know about that were instrumental in women's suffrage? Um, well, you know, I think it's important to to recognize the African American women that fought for suffrage too. And I, I every time we talk about the suffrage anniversary, I think um, it's important to point out its sort of big asterisk that it had, which it gave um, women nationwide the, nationwide the right to vote. But um, 
many African-American women in the South were prevented from voting until 1965. So it's, you know, we have to think of think of both of those dates when we um, when we talk about the anniversary. But, you know, Sojourner Truth and Mary Church Terrell and Ida Bay Wells were women that had a lot of impact. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's daughter, Harriet Stanton Blatch, was one of those that spearheaded the um, to start having parades to really make the movement more visible. It, there are really there are just so many women that played so many different parts and were so um, innovative. And you know, one of the most interesting things about following sort of the track of the very long suffrage movement. I mean, to, to think that it um, took from 1848 to 1920, that's a generation of, of women, and they all had to build on what the previous generation had done. It was, they had to first have, have the meetings and just try to get the word out across the country. And then they began to fight for actual legal change, you know, fight for the amendment. And then um, in, in the 1870s, there was a sort of shift to um, a woman named Victoria Woodhull, who was also just a, a firebrand of a woman, um, started arguing, look, the Constitution gives citizens the right to vote. We're citizens. We have the right. Let's all go vote. Um, and I loved there was a New York Times article about Susan B. Anthony finally going to vote and they tried to stop her and said she couldn't vote and but they couldn't cite a reason why she didn't so she voted and came home and wrote Elizabeth um, Katie Stanton that I've been and gone and done it. Um, they did fine her $100 which she refused to pay um, but at the time the New York Times write up about it it was the, the headline of it was minor topics so it was you know, even as they were making these big inroads, there wasn't a whole lot of support in the country. And it just took all of these women such a long time to um, to get the right to vote. But they worked and worked and, and chipped away and chipped away and were savvy as far as the legislature and the different states. And, you know, it's of, of, our, of a very tough history. The suffrage movement is one that can... Um, certainly brings some joy and pride, even though it, it certainly got tough and ugly at times. It was not universally endorsed by women, all women of the period. What were some of the opponents, female opponents' arguments against women's suffrage? You know, some women who were wealthier and uh, sort of upper-class women already had a, a pretty nice life and, and didn't necessarily see the need to vote because their husbands were powerful and, and, you know, could vote with no problem and continue to run the show. It was, some of it was part of the temperance movement of, um, wanting to, to, um, not, not combine those two that, that if women got the right to vote, then, um, alcohol sales would be banned, which of course they were. And then it came back, but, uh, that was a big part of it. Um, so there were just, you know, it just took, took a while to change some minds. It took a long while to change some minds.
Well, let me move to the role of the Supreme Court, especially recently. The Roberts Court has had two major decisions that impact voting, and both of them were five to four decisions. One in 2013, Shelby County versus Holder, and 2018, Husted versus A. Philip Randolph Institute. Tell me about those, uh, the Roberts Court's uh, direction on voting issues. Well, the it is undoubtedly that that the 2013 Shelby County decision has had a massive impact on voting rights, and there isn't any voting rights advocate or attorney that that doesn't see it as just a ground-shaking impact. So, um, while of course the voting laws that are discriminatory are still illegal, there's not federal oversight of states with a history of discrimination that you know, the kind of stopgap where they need federal approval to make voting changes. So, um, you know, what's so interesting, I suppose, about that 2013 decision is how immediately um, states began making changes. So Texas passed a voter ID law almost immediately. I mean, they, they announced or put into effect their voting ID law almost immediately. They announced within hours of that decision that it would go into effect. And some of the laws that were put forth, that particular Texas voter ID was knocked down by the courts, and now they have another voter ID law. Um, North Carolina created a lot of, um, you know, they, they stopped really decreased early voting. They just did a lot of things that um, directly impacted the African-American community, and, and courts called them out on it. So some of these laws are still struck down, but they just have to do the whole winding through the court system. Um, and, you know, there are, of course, constant calls for the reinstatement of that part of the um, bill that they, I mean, part of the Voting Rights Act that they struck down. Um, and, you know, so, some of the cases sort of combine. So there's, um, a few years after 2013, there was a decision that allowed states to strike voters from the voting rolls if they hadn't voted in the last two federal elections and didn't respond to, you know, a, a postcard saying, you haven't voted lately, do you still want to be registered? Um, and that sort of thing has, has led to what people like the League of Women Voters say is some of their top concerns right now are these aggressive um, purges of the voter rolls. Um, that do seem to, you know, it's how how exactly all of it comes together is there's a myriad of ways, but the the main sort of studies show that the voter roll purging happens more aggressively in states that have a history of discrimination. So, you know, again, that's just one of the barriers. If if you think you're registered but you show up to vote and you're not especially if you're in a state that requires 30-day voter registration, um, you know, you won't get to vote and you've probably fully expected that you were. So it's it's all of those things that came from that 2013 Shelby County decision um, that give voting rights activists a, a whole lot of headache and a whole lot of work. I mean, to that, that same Native American scholar, Daniel McCool, called the 2013 decision, I think he said it was the um, Lawyers Employment Fund because the lawsuits that, that are now filed as a result of, of Shelby County um, 
are they feel nearly endless to be honest let's um, put a still on screen to look at how voter turnout actually has happened in the United States over the past couple of elections. In 2012, 58.6% of all eligible voters, that's what these numbers are. 2014, off your election, 36.7. The 2016 election, 60.1. And 2018, another off your election, but much higher at 50% of all eligibles. How does the United States turnout compare with other Western democracies? How well do we do? We don't do great. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sad to report that, that we don't have a lot of bragging rights there. You know, there are countries um, that have as high as 90 percent. You know, some of those countries do require, um, you know, voting as a requirement, but the penalties are pretty low. I, I don't really think it's um, a fear of breaking that law that, that get people to the polls. Um, but, you know, it's just it's something that that we should do better on. There's just no doubt about it. We we should do better and we should all want to do better. And I, that's sort of in the book why I wanted to take the, the stance, which I really believe of, this should not be a partisan issue. We should want everyone in our country who's eligible, eligible to vote and we should make it as easy and accessible for them to do so. You know, there's there's no reason to make voting difficult. It's it's not it is a we like to think of it as as a privilege and we're lucky to of course live in a democracy but in our democracy voting is a right and i just i hate the politicization of things that are just making voting more accessible i find it um really i find it very frustrating and i I think it's a flaw in the way that our politicians um think about things i just don't think we should be politicizing um having longer early voting periods or, you know, mail-in, mail-in voting is another thing that's obviously become highly politicized. And, you know, I just wish that wasn't the case. That, that may seem very optimistic, but um, most Americans believe that the voting is a fundamental part of our, of our rights. And um, I feel like if we all thought about it more in that way and and then carried it out to, all right, if, it, if it's fundamental, what do we need to to make everyone be able to do it? Um, so that's, I don't know, I'm, I'm on such a soapbox of the politicization, politi- politicization of this um, because I think it's unnecessary and that it hurts, that it's hurt, that it hurts things like our, our turnout. You mentioned earlier that youth turnout has waxed and waned from election to election. Young uh, viewers may not realize that the right for 18-year-olds to vote is relatively recent. President Nixon signed it into law in 1971, uh, and it was, again, a constitutional amendment. The quickest, that's interesting part of the history, the quickest ratification ever of a constitutional amendment. Uh, here's a bit of Richard Nixon about the 18-year-old vote. Well, it's a very great privilege to welcome this very exciting group to the White House on the day that we celebrate our National Independence Day. And it seems to me that it is particularly appropriate that on this same day, we are certifying the 26th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. That amendment, as you know, provides for the right to vote of all of our young people between 18 and 21, 11 million new voters as a result of this amendment that you now will see certified by the GSA administrator. So why does the youth vote uh, wax and wane? What gets young people to the polls? 
Oh, I mean, that is the million-dollar question that everyone's been trying to answer since since, uh, since that Nixon speech. Um, you know, it, it does wax and wane, but it it mainly stays low. I mean, no no matter how you slice it. Um, a lot of people think it's because um, currently because, you know, we lack sort of civics as as the way that might have been taught in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s. There, there is less of a focus on that now. So that's a reason. Um, but I, I, what I kind of kept coming to was, since we can't identify an absolute reason other than a lack of education, we just need to do everything we can to try to get them out there. And one of the most heartening parts of reporting this book was seeing young people that are doing this work. So I... It was just after the Brett Kavanaugh um, confirmation hearings, which any way one looked at it, it felt like an ugly week in the country. Whatever side you were on, it, was, it wasn't a pleasant experience, I don't think. And I flew from watching those to um, sunny Los Angeles and a conference of the actress and activist Yara Shahidi, who had gathered uh, young activists from all 50 states. They were... Um, active in different, you know, some cared about the environment, some cared about um, LGBTQ rights, um, some were just great speakers, you know, who who were who wanted to be involved, and they just spent a full day brainstorming, getting their peers to vote, and speaking the way they said, you know, speaking the language that they knew each other would understand. So um, things like asking. Um, YouTube stars to incorporate voting into their content. I mean, they just had, they had all of these ideas that they were working for, um, to put into effect in 2018 and into 2020, but you know, groups like that. And then of course go into 2018, the March for our lives movement was a massive shift for young voters. And when you look at the 2014 turnout, so to compare 2014 to 2018, since they're both midterms, the 2014, voter turnout for 18 to 29 year olds was 21%. I mean, it's just, that number is terrible, 21%. And in 2018, it jumped to 36%. So that is just a huge leap that I really do think is because of, you know, the politics that were going on at the time, certainly climate change and um, school violence and shootings at schools are something that impact young people you know, even more directly than than we can understand, especially the school shootings. Um, and those movements and a focus on registration and showing up really did have an, have an impact. And it's not that people haven't been trying for a long time. You know, Rock the Boat was founded, I believe, in 1980, and it's a wonderful organization that continues. So it's not as if trying to get the youth out are a, is a new thing, but there really is a lot of indications um, from 2018 that this really could be really could be a shift and a breakthrough. So um, it's really hopeful going into 2020. Coronavirus has has harmed voter registration efforts because so, so much of that is still done in person at you know things like concerts and churches and even high school graduations. Um, so it's going to be a little interesting to see how that shakes out registration wise this year. But you know I, those groups are are hoping to catch up and are finding innovative ways to, you know, Michelle Obama's organization had a massive couch party where um, people could sign up to, to call 
people to register to vote or text. Um, so the youth voter turnout in our country is just tough and um, something we need to do better about, but there is um, positive movements. And it's not just huge, huge organizations like Michelle Obama's When We All Vote. You know, there's a, a lawyer in California who, um, you know, a practicing attorney, certainly an educated woman who was shocked to to learn that she didn't realize that Californians could pre-register to vote when they were 16 or 17. So a lot of states have the option of um, you can register well before you're 18. So when the time comes around, you're just, you know, your first election after 18, you're ready to go. And she realized that was a law that she didn't know about until her daughter was old enough. And she started looking at other states, started looking at how those states got the word out, how schools could get the word out. And within a couple of years, she now works with um, teachers and students in 25 states to help students register each other. So that's a big movement, too, that's going on is to have high school students be trained on how to help their fellow students register. And, you know, there's wonderful things that these high school groups do. They, they might challenge their um, rival school to see how what type of registration they can get and you know, these, those grassroots movements can really matter. And certainly they can matter um, on a local level. Are these it's, efforts bipartisan? Most of them are, yes. Uh, some some do lean, lean one way or the other, but most of these um, are definitely bipartisan. And any organization that goes into a school, um, you know, just by nature, it's very important that they... Um, work in a bipartisan way. So it really is just about um, everyone that I spoke to that does the work, especially in schools, talks about how careful they are to, you know, they'll describe what the primary system means and what registering as one party or the other might mean as far as the mechanics of it. And then otherwise just try to send, um, you know, send them to information that that might help them decide which, which one they are. But it's, um, they really try to be very careful and, just talking about registering specifically, which is what the what companies that are involved do as well. Um, you know, a lot a lot of the get out the vote efforts um, are are nonpartisan. Certainly, each party has has their own as well. Um, but many many options out there. If if that's a concern for for people, um, they're nonpartisan. And the League of Women Voters is nonpartisan, and it does not only registration and education work, but also, you know, fight so many of the voting rights lawsuits throughout the country. So there are nonpartisan, nonpartisan organizations, large and small, that are, are doing this work. So to remedy an, a number of the concerns that people have had in addition to the coronavirus, exacerbated by the coronavirus, uh, mail-in voting is getting an extra special uh, look at this year, and states are doing, um, uh, considering converting some of their rules uh, or relaxing some of their rules regarding it. President Trump, of course, has been very vocal about his concerns about mail-in voting. Let's listen to him in one of his recent comments about it. You know, we had seven elections for Congress, and they were, like, tied, and they lost every one of them because they came and they dropped a whole pile of ballots on the table. But you don't think they, they rip them out of mailboxes? It's all the time you read about it. You can read about it. Take a look. They do worse than that. In some cases, they won't sell them, like, to a Republican community, a conservative community. They don't happen to send the ballots to those communities. And if you just use common sense, you know that's going to happen. 
But they raid the mailboxes. They can even print ballots. They get the same paper, the same machine, nothing special. They get the same paper, the same machine. They print ballots. And Bill would have to do a great job to catch him doing it, or your state authorities would have to. But you have tremendous potential, and you have tremendous fraud and abuse, but you have tremendous potential for fraud and abuse. So five states uh, currently send every voter in their state a ballot, Colorado, Hawaii, Utah, Washington, and Oregon. Other states have varying uh, rules about requesting them uh, and, and needing an excuse or not. But those five states, if we zero just on them, what has their experience been? Is there widespread fraud and abuse of the mail-in voting system? There just isn't. There, there is not. When I hear President Trump's comment on it, I mean, the first, it's so hard to know even where to start because it is, I feel like that puts such terrible information out there. There just is not any sort of widespread problem with fraud in the states that use vote by mail. There are so many safeguards. Um, I mean, just to, to address one, one of the things President Trump said about things being stolen from the mailbox, if that is a concern of, of yours or, you know, you can drop your ballot off. Colorado, for instance, has has drop-off centers. And, and I think a lot of states will do that, where you can just walk your ballot there. And many, many people choose that option. Um, it's, it's convenient. And, you know, like anything else, you like to drop it off as close as you can. Um, with There are just so many safeguards. There's You have to, you know, the signature on the outer envelope of your ballot usually has to match the um, signature on the voter roll. Um, the ballots are very specific and, you know, throughout the state, I wish I knew the number throughout the country of how many different ballots that we have. So if someone were to try to do such a thing, um, it would be just impossible to, to pull off something in such a wide, widespread way. The ballots are specific to many of them, um, have barcodes. It's just vote by mail in the states that have you have used it. Um, it's something that, that they have had to work on and build. And those secretary of states, secretaries of states who have used it, that's the concern they express about using it in such a widespread way in 2020 is logistically being able to print enough ballots to send ballots to everyone. You know, we've had we've had some hiccups here in, in New York with ballots. You request your ballot and, and not getting there in time. Um, mine didn't. I requested an absentee ballot, and I didn't get one, and I'll be running out to vote today. Um, but the concerns that the secretaries of state have are all logistical ones. It is not fraud. That, that is just we need to focus on the process and and move away from these fraud concerns because that just has not um, been an issue. What those states that have it have been able to do was they were able to start small, so tested in local elections and then expand it nationwide and, and kind of tinker with what's the drop off. And, you know, Colorado has voting centers where you can vote in person same day if you want to. Um, I think one of the most important things to talk about when we're having this sort of nationwide vote by mail conversation and how it's going to work is that no one wants it to be all vote by mail everyone who works in this field knows that you have to have plenty of in-person voting and plenty of early voting 
um, because there are a lot of people who aren't comfortable with vote by mail. Um, there are some, you know, vaccinated Americans in Utah, some Native American communities who don't have ready access uh, to a post office that had a negative impact on on their turnout rate. So there are a lot of things to to think about and um, learn about. It's just that fraud is is not one of them. So we have when just both- just two minutes left as we wrap up here. Congress allocated four hundred million dollars in the coronavirus first relief package for states uh, for voting for this year. What really can be done in the few months that we have left to ensure that America's vote in November uh, happens uh, in an, a way that has integrity and that people can be sure of the results? Um, you know, some people think that that is not at all enough money, but that'll have to work its way through Congress and that part get figured out. But I think um, local officials need to work with their state officials, especially a really opposite of that. State officials need to help prepare local officials, make sure and recruit enough poll workers, work on the education aspect. I mean, the logistics of voting really are endless. Um, And so, you know, for the typical voter, though, I think it's almost more important, you just have to do what you can do as the voter, and that is learn all of your voting options. If you can early vote, it's probably a great idea to do so. You should request your ballot as early as possible if you're in a state where you need to request it. Um, These are all, especially with mail-in voting, we're all in a new system and we all have a lot of rules to learn. Um, But I think it's a great opportunity to really focus on the education aspect of it and educate ourselves and others and for, you know, for the states to take on that responsibility too, states and, and the media to really help lay out what needs to happen. Um, you know, there isn't so much an individual voter can do to make sure that their county elections board has it pulled together. Although feel free to call and volunteer, volunteer to be a poll worker. Um, it's not even volunteer. It's a paid position. Um, So I think we just have to all keep abreast of the many, many factors that are playing into it and then make sure we do our individual part um, to get ourselves out to vote and get others out to as well. The book is called Thank You for Voting, The Maddening, Enlightening, Inspiring Truth About Voting in America. Erin Geiger-Smith, thank you very much for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.